Well, thanks very much, Pete, for working your way through those uh, three readings. And I hope we just began to sense um, a bit of a flow uh, going from the first of those, which is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, through to the middle central one, Psalm 8, which is obviously in the middle of the Bible, and then moving on again to Hebrews towards the end of the Bible. A flow, a common theme, a development of... um, a wonderful truth or set of truths concerning God and his plan for men and women, for the human race. Before I go any further, let me have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder that we can have. If you have ordained praise from children, then how much more we, who have been given so much more knowledge and understanding, should have our hearts burning with love and admiration for who you are and what you have made us and what we are becoming in the Lord Jesus Christ. So open our eyes, we pray, that we may further behold wonderful things from your word. Amen. Amen. Uh, Before I go any further, may I just, uh, on behalf of the lay preaching team extend uh, the warmest of welcomes to Holy Trinity, to to James and Anna, of course, and the the family. Um, uh, I'm sure we all pray that um, we would be as much a blessing and encouragement to you as I'm sure you will be to us. Um, There's one little thing that I think Richard may not have told you just yet, which is that the rest of the preaching team is on holiday after today (laughs) um, until the end of September. We'll leave you the key as we leave, and it's up to you for the next few months. You'll be fine. <laughs> if, you want, if you'd like to have a Bible open, then a good place to have it open would be at the central uh, reading. But I will be putting the key text up on the screen, so if you can see uh, the screen clearly enough, then that should help too. But uh, it would be good perhaps to have Psalm 8 open in front of us, and that's page 546 in the Church Bibles. You will, I hope, pardon me for using the word man or mankind to designate men and women. I wouldn't normally do that, but on this occasion, I'm going to do that, partly because the New International Version of the Bible, which you're using, uses that. There's actually one or two other reasons I won't go into now, where to have that kind of singular approach, a single person representing, as it were, the human race, is actually helpful on this occasion. I'll say no more about it than that, apart from saying, I wouldn't normally do it, but I'm doing it tonight. Uh, The question then asked in Psalm 8... And verse 4 is that one. What is man? And uh, leaving the Bible aside for a moment, just thinking more generally, I suppose there are uh, a number of ways in which that question, what is man, might be approached. Uh, The question might be approached in terms of the chemical composition of our bodies, we are this chemical and that chemical, uh, you know, a lot of oxygen, a bit of nitrogen, a bit of phosphorus, a bit of magnesium, a bit of chlorine, and so on. That's one way of answering the question, what is man? A second way of answering the question, what is man, is to look at his or her, his and her evolutionary development. Uh, 
That's another approach to it. Another would be to define uh, man and woman in terms of, it's sometimes been described as man is the only uh, uh, animal uh, that blushes or needs to. Think about that one. Or we could define, getting a bit closer to our psalm now, we could define man uh, in terms of a tiny speck of dust on a small rocky planet circling an average star on the outside of an average galaxy which itself contains a hundred thousand million other stars, give or take one or two, and with that galaxy being itself just one of a hundred thousand million other galaxies. And then we could say, what do you think? How do you feel like that? A little bit smaller. <laughs> Psalm 8 asks the question, what is man? Well, actually, no, it doesn't ask the question, what is man? It asks the question, look at it with me, either on the screen or on the Bible in front, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It's a question that's being asked in relation to our God, our maker, our creator. And the psalm gives uh, several angles on this, I think, including an angle that comes from the way the psalm begins and ends. It begins and ends, as you can see, exactly the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm is wrapped up in this exclamation of praise, of admiration, of adoration, of adoration to our God. There's a huge amount that could be said about just that statement that comes at the beginning and the end in the context of the psalm as a whole. Just one or two things very quickly. Um, one scholar, I haven't checked this out, one scholar uh, says this is the only one of the psalms which is entirely addressed to God. Think about that. You'd have thought there are many psalms that are addressed to God. This is the only one that, from beginning to end, is only addressed to God. Here's another more obvious point. Here's a psalm that contains no petitions. God isn't being asked to do anything. <laughs> it's a psalm of pure praise and admiration and astonishment, if you like. I wonder if you sometimes think to yourself... Am I making progress as a Christian? Am I developing? Am I growing as a Christian? Am I moving towards maturity? There's various ways in which that question might be approached. I think this psalm gives us one angle on the question, am I developing as a Christian? Am I growing as a Christian? When in our prayer life, we can set aside for the time being our shopping list of things that we want God to do and simply admire, adore, praise God, then we have reached the spirit of this psalm and have a degree in that regard of spiritual maturity. 
when we can love God for who he is and not simply for what he can give us. There's something outrageous about this statement too, which is that a thousand years before the coming of Christ and David's world was as full, or the world in David's day was as full of other gods as our own world is today, David acknowledges only one God. Uh, oh, Lord, that's Yahweh, as uniquely re- uh, re- revealed by God, as supremely to Moses. Our Lord, Adonai, my master. David acknowledges just the one God who is, whose name is majestic in all the earth, who set his glory above the heavens. So, beginning to approach the question, what is man? The first part of the answer is, we're made to worship. We are born worshippers. I think the psalm abundantly shows that, don't you think? But here's a second thing within the psalm. There's the question. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... Oh, I feel so small. No, he doesn't say that. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you call him to mind? That you, what is the son of man that you care for him? That is the question. Notice he refers, David refers to the moon and the stars as the work of God's fingers. And we know the cosmos to be far vaster than David would have known. But still, all of these galaxies and solar systems and planets are the work of God's finger. He just made it with his finger. It was as easy as that. God is so far above this vast universe. And David is full of wonder that such a God should even be aware of you and I but he is. He is acutely aware of you and I, of the human race that he has made. Let us allow ourselves to be astonished by the care of God. Let's not be glib about the love of God for human beings. Oh, of course, God loves us. That's his job, isn't it? No, there's no of course about it. It's an astonishing truth only known by revelation, by what God has revealed to us, that God cares for you and I. But he does. So we're made not only to worship, but also made to wonder. But then, in a sense, even more astonishingly, we come on to verse 5 and 6. Asking the question, what is man that you care about him at all? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Maybe that should even read, you made him little lower than God. And crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. What a vocation. What a calling for the human race. To be designated, not only to be given the, the, the dignity of being a little lower than God, a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the heavenly beings, but to be given such a role to be God's vice-regent, to rule on God's behalf over God's good 
creation. Three things then from the psalm that we are made to worship, made to wonder, and as we've seen, made to rule. Now, I hope you see uh, in the, uh, or, or detect in the wording of the psalm a very clear echo of the first reading that we had from Pete, from Genesis 1. Did you notice that? Because Genesis 1 says, God created man in his own image. That's kind of made him a little less than God, a little less than heavenly beings, isn't it? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. Do you see that word again? Rule over all the things that God has made. So a clear echo of this creation mandate. We're created in God's image to rule. And of course, not to rule, let us say, let us be, be, be clear, but to, to rule on God's behalf, not with contempt for creation, but with care. Not with hubris, but with humility. This comes across very um, beautifully in Genesis chapter 2, a slightly different account of creation, where God puts the man in the garden to work it and take care of it. God creates us as rulers of his creation, not to despoil creation, but to care for it. That's our calling. That's God's plan. That's God's blueprint for the human race that he has made just to be just less than himself in dignity and glory. But, obviously, something has gone seriously wrong. I could prove this from Scripture. I could take you to Genesis chapter 3, just two chapters later, and remind you of how God's, the, the high point of God's good creation, the man and the woman, rebelled against God's good and wise command and was thrown out of the garden. But I don't, it doesn't need to be proved from Scripture. One of the Christian truths which should be obvious to every one of us is the fact that we are not what we are made to be. We are not what we were meant to be. God made us able to tame all kinds of (laughs) wild animals. But we can't even control ourselves. As letter James says, we can control, learn to control animals, we can't even control our own, own tongues. We can control social media, and we can connect with thousands of people in the instant moment, either for building friendships or for cyberbullying. We can't get that right. We can use our reproductive technology either for preserving frail, fragile, unborn life or for destroying it. With industrialization, we have the ability to build machines of incredible power and utility, and yet at the same time, in the same way, have sown the seeds of catastrophic changes to the Earth's climate. Think of this week's end temperatures. 
Using our telescopes, we can reach into the farthest and oldest parts of the universe. But so many of us are still completely blind to the creator of the universe. We have mastered travel through land, sea, and air. But still so many have not reached their desired destination and found peace for their souls. Yes, we rule, but our rule has in so many ways gone very tragically wrong. God's image is still there. Defaced, but not destroyed. Tarnished, but not obliterated. There hangs in the chapel of King's College in Cambridge this picture by Rubens. It's called The Adoration of the Magi. One day in 1974, vandals broke in and defaced it by scratching the letters I-R-A on it, each of them two feet high. The next day, the painting was taken down and this notice was put up in its place. It is believed that this painting can be restored to its original condition. And that strikes me as a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's plan to restore his image in broken humanity. It is believed that it can be restored to its original uh, condition. Well, actually, better than its original condition. Moving then on to our third Bible passage, Hebrews chapter 2. Quoting, you will see from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, and so on and so forth. And then moving on to say, we, in the light of this question, who is man, and you made him little less than the angels, and so on, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels when, in his incarnation, in his earthly life, in his execution, in those ways, a little less than the angels, in his humiliation, now crowned with glory and honour, having raised from the dead bodily, ascended and now reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus. The letter of the Hebrews has already defined Jesus as the perfect image bearer of God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, I think. And now we see Jesus as the pioneer of not so much a new humanity, but a renewed humanity. The perfect image bearer. What Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls the last Adam. The first Adam fell. The last Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, did not fall. He he was a perfect follower of his father's will or what the reformer, great reformer Martin Luther called Jesus the proper man. The man as we were all meant to be. Made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. It's in Jesus that we are being restored to our original condition. 
we find our true identity in him. So many these days are looking inside to try and discover who they really are. And that's wrong. You will not discover your real self inside yourself. You are defined by God and by God in Christ. He will tell you who you are as he renews you in his own image. We find our true identity in Christ, the perfect representative standing now at the head of a renewed human race. And I just love these things that come up. We didn't include them in the reading, but I'd love you just to go further with uh, Hebrews 2, perhaps when you get home or during the coming week, because it makes very clear in, in, in alluding to other passages from the Old Testament that Jesus is this head of a renewed humanity. He comes to God, gloriously exalted, and he brings his children with him, bringing many sons to glory. We're of the same family. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And here's one borrowed, adapted from Isaiah, where this lovely picture of Jesus presenting himself to his father, saying, here I am, and the children you have given me. That's you and I, if we are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We are the children that the father has given Jesus, now presented back to the, back to the father as Jesus' reward. You are Jesus' reward for all his hard work, for his suffering. Jesus does not consider himself complete, unless he has his bride, his church, you and I, with him. Here then, the human race is under restoration. And each of us can enter into that work by following Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But there's just one more thing from this passage, which is that we continue to be a work in progress. We know that we are far from perfect as followers of Jesus Christ, aiming towards maturity, but never achieving uh, perfection by any stretch of the imagination. We do not yet, says the writer, we do not yet see everything subject to him. This is what preachers often call the already and the not yet of the gospel of the Christian life. Already we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but not yet has it come to full uh, consummation. That will only happen in the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness will find its final home. Our life's work can be considered an apprenticeship for the life to come. We are being prepared to take our part in God's new creation. And because it's going to be an embodied new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, then we continue to have the utmost respect for this creation. And we support, we agree with David Attenborough when he stands up at Glastonbury and thanks them for, for not using a million glass bot- uh, plastic bot- bottles. That should be part of our calling to, especially the Christian's calling, to care for God's good creation. We cannot call ourselves true worship, worshippers of God and yet be neglectful or abusive of his good 
creation. But still, we're a work in progress. And so we can all say, surely, I am not what I was. I am not what I shall be. I am not what I should be. I am not what I desire to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. A word of prayer. Lord Jesus, you have gone before as the head of a renewed humanity to take many, bring many sons and daughters to glory. And now I pray for those gathered here this evening that each of us might be assured of our place in that family, assured of our place as a brother and, or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ, committed to your good creation, committed to wise and careful rule, committed to your gospel, committed to your project, your vision, your plan to restore all things in Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves once again to your plan and ask that you make us faithful soldiers and servants in these coming days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.